Good morning. Um, um, for those who don't know, you might know me. My name is Sean Kappas. Um, I just finished serving a three-year term as elder here at the church, and I'm pleased to um, preach God's word today as we're continuing our series here in 1 Samuel. So uh, I invite you to pray with me before we start. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the great king. Um, you are the one who um, lifts people up from the ash heap. You're the one who raises up kings and tears down kings. And uh, we uh, all have sinned against you, and yet you do not repay us according to our iniquities for those who are in Christ, because you sent him as a propitiation and as a savior from our sins. And so I pray that we would see um, your greatness as the king of the world. I pray that we would uh, see your greatness in this text here today. I pray that you, we, our hearts would be drawn to you in love and in faith. And I pray that uh, my words would be clear. I pray that they would not be my own words, but we would hear you speaking through uh, this text here today for what you had to say to your people when it was written and for what you have to say to us here today. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So these are the words that end the book of Judges. Um, they're rather haunting closing words, and they finish up this cycle that has happened over and over in the book of Judges where the people of Israel fall into sin, they cry out that God hands them over um, and punishes them, uh, hands them over to the nations. The people call out to God for help and in repentance, and then God uh, raises up a judge and brings salvation, and then the people go back to sinning. And you have the cycle that's going on over and over, and the people's sin gets worse, the deliverance lasts less long, it doesn't last as long, and even the judges get worse. In the final chapters of this book, in chapters 19 through 21 of Judges, depict a, honestly, a horrific and chilling uh, sequence of events. Um, a Levite and his concubine stay the night in the town of Gibeah, in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in this disturbing echo of Sodom and Gomorrah, men come out who want to rape this man, and then they end up raping his concubine and killing her, uh, or who dies after that. He sends the pieces of her body through all the territory of Israel to call them to bring these men who are called worthless men, which is actually what we just saw in um, the end of chapter 10. It's used to refer to Eli's sons in 1 Samuel, and it's actually even used, that word is used in the New Testament to refer to Satan. Um, and uh, they, they want to bring these men to justice. Um, so all the tribes of Israel gather, but the tribe of Benjamin refused to give over these uh, men to justice. So they go to war with the rest of Israel. And um, after a series of battles where God is telling them, you need to keep like, punishing what Benjamin, um, the people of Israel actually go overboard. They, you stop hearing God speaking to the people, and they destroy all, uh, every person in the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 people who flee into the wilderness. Then in chapter 21, the it's told that the people of Israel made a vow 
saying that uh, no one will be given as wives for the tribe of Benjamin, effectively wiping them out. And they also said that anyone who didn't come and help us against the tribe of Benjamin, we're going to kill them as well. Um, and so then they realize they have gone too far, but rather than seeking God's forgiveness, they discover that only the people of Jabesh-Gilead did not come to fight against the sins of Benjamin. And so in order to make up for their rash vow, they go and punish Jabesh-Gilead, and they kill all of the people there except for 400 virgins, who they give as wives to the people of Benjamin to keep their tribe from being wiped out. And so I don't tell this story <laughs> just purely to shock everyone and, and because I enjoy this, but because the original readers of 1 Samuel would know um, that this happens. And when they hear what happens in 1 Samuel 11, they're thinking, Saul, Saul's this man from this, tri this place, Gibeah, Jabesh Gilead, this city that was wiped out because of the sin, ultimately because of the sins of Gibeah, um, is now the people who are in dire straits here. And so they're going to immediately uh, think about that, and there's going to be this kind of bad taste in their mouths from the outset, and I think we're supposed to have that as well. And you, you start asking questions like, why does the Bible include things as awful as this? Or why are the, even the chosen people of God so bad? Because it's not just the, the justice that should, like they, they carry out justice, but then they go way above and beyond what God had commanded in Deuteronomy 13 for this sort of thing. And so you ask the question, are these people, is anyone really worth saving? And then finally, does God really care? And is he going to do anything about this? Because this is just how the book of Judges ends, is then there, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone was, did what was right in his eyes. And so this is the circumstances in which the book of 1 Samuel begins. And so there's rampant sin in the events to end the book of Judges, and even the carrying out of justice is distorted beyond recognition. And so even we have Samuel who has a brief period of renewal where people turn back to God and are trusting him, but the kingdom itself is not on an upward trajectory. Samuel's own children are sadly corrupt, and the people ask for a king like all the nations rather than trusting in God as king. And so I think these questions of does God really care, and is God going to deal with these sorts of things, this text is going to show us that he does care because this text is more than just Saul saving some random city. And so I want us to think, in light of what I've shared already, what what might we expect, what might we think when we see that the king that is appointed for all of Israel is a man from this tribe, or not this tribe, the very city of Gibeah that brought about all of these awful things. It was as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And why is the city in our text, Jabesh Gilead, the city that was massacred to provide wives for the tribe of Benjamin? So what I want to argue today is that God has orchestrated the events of Saul becoming king in order to show that he is still the merciful savior and king of Israel. So that's my main point today. God is the merciful savior and king of Israel, and he shows this through first a merciless enemy. So I'm going to read, look at verses 1 through 3 with me again. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to him, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, 
that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So in, this, in these verses, we're introduced to the main antagonist of the narrative, Nahash, who is not familiar to us at this point, but actually when we, when we get to chapter 12, Samuel actually tells the people of Israel, the re, one of the reasons you asked for a king was you saw that Nahash was gearing up to come against you. And so people, uh, so it's, it's not just that Nahash is a random person who's coming against them. He is one of the very reasons that people asked for a king in Israel. Um, so we're not told in the text how long Nahash has laid siege to Jabesh Gilead, but it doesn't seem like it's very long before all of the men of Jabesh come out and say, please make a treaty of, uh, with us and we're going to serve you. So they presumably think that casting themselves on the mercy of Nahash um, will reduce bloodshed and save them. But uh, the hopes of Nahash showing any kind of mercy are very quickly dashed. Um, Nahash doesn't simply want them to serve him. He wants to humili humiliate them and humiliate all of Israel by showing them to be weak and cowardly. So gouging out each of their right eyes would prevent them from being well fit to ever fight back and resist him, and it would show his complete dominance over them. And so when he, when he ret returns with this, the people, the elders, seem to reconsider, okay, maybe we shouldn't offer a treaty. And so they ask him, okay, can we send for help? <laughs> can you, you wait seven days to come against us, otherwise we'll, uh, we'll surrender to you. So it almost feels like uh, this is their second option. Their backup option was to ask for help. Their first option was simply to surrender. And so it's not clear, is it because they're cowardly or is it because of what happened to them in the past that they don't think that the people of Israel are going to come and save them. Um, but what's interesting is this word for save or deliver is used over 20 times in the book of Judges and then up to this point in Samuel to refer to how the judges, including Samuel, saved Israel from her enemies by God's power. And so it's the same word Samuel uses in chapter 10 when he says, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And then it's the same word that's again used at the end of chapter 10 by the worthless men who say, how can this man Saul save us? And so uh, the fact that God is not explicitly the primary or backup option for Jabesh Gilead would imply that uh, Jabesh Gilead would imply that they are continuing the trend that our brother Brandon uh, illustrated two weeks ago of looking to human means for salvation, either surrendering to uh, Nahash immediately or helping that someone from Israel is going to um, <clears throat> come help them. So how is God going to look on this? Now we've got all the, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, all these pieces fully in place. And we start asking the question, is God going to raise up another man to save his people like he has done so many times with the judges? Will that man be the sinfully requested Saul or will Nahash humiliate Israel by beginning his conquest in Jabesh Gilead? And is God going to just give them over to him because they didn't trust him? So we continue on 
And we see that God is the merciful Savior and King of Israel. He shows this through a merciless enemy and now an anointed judge. So look with me at verses 4 through 11 again. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they returned, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will, ourselves, we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So when we look at the text, our first observation, going back to verse 4, is that Saul isn't even present when the messengers deliver the terrible news. He comes back in, he's working in the field, uh, working with oxen. Um, and so despite having been anointed as king, he has not become taking and taking and taking and becoming a rich ruler uh, as predicted by God in 1 Samuel 8. He seems to simply go back to farming. Um, so I don't know about you, but I was actually a little surprised by this because if, if you're familiar with the life of Saul, you think of him living in richness and opulence. And he, I, feel, I, I think of him as always having been prideful and power hungry, but he doesn't start out this way. Um, and then upon hearing the news of Jabesh, though, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he appears to be a changed man. And so this language of the Spirit of God rushing upon people is, again, a common theme in the book of Judges, and this particular language is used, was used uh, just, just before when it talked about the Spirit of God coming on Saul and prophesying, and it's also what's used when uh, Samson is given superhuman strength to be a judge um, in Israel. Uh, now, with Saul, God is mightily equipping him to achieve salvation for his people because God said in chapter 9 that he has heard the cries of his people. And even though they sinfully asked for a king, he is still mercifully sending one who will save them. And he's going to do this through a reversal of the events in Judges 19 through 21. So Saul starts out after this Holy Spirit rushes upon him and he cuts a yoke of oxen into pieces and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel, just like the messengers were sent asking for help and just like the Levite did um, with his concubine in Judges 19 and calling the people to arms against the people of Gibeah. Um, the implication in Judges was, so shall it be done to you, 
if you do not come out. But Saul says, so shall it be done to his oxen. Um, Matthew Henry puts it helpfully when he says, it was necessary that the command should be enforced with some penalty, but it was, this one was not nearly so severe as that which was affixed by a similar order by the whole congregation in Judges 21.5 when they said that anyone who didn't come out would get killed. Um, Saul wished to show that his government was more gentle than that which they had been under. So Saul's not simply modeling and repeating the overly harsh government um, in the time where there was no king and everyone did what was right in his eyes. Uh, rather, under God's influence, he is already bringing some small amount of redemption and correction to what happened in Judges 19. And so I want us to pause here for a moment and have us consider something. So in the previous chapter, uh, Samuel gathers everyone to crown a king in Israel. And Saul is selected, and everyone says, where is he? And he's hiding among the baggage. So um, now suddenly, and then, and then he goes back, he's just a simple farmer at the beginning of this chapter. Now suddenly, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he zealously defends the honor of Israel and becomes a brave and clever military commander. And presumably, he's up against a powerful and a perhaps superior force. I didn't address this earlier, but you think to yourself, why did Nahash say, oh, sure, you can send for help and wait a week for everyone to come and help you? It's because Nahash thinks that either Israel's too cowardly to come and help or that his military force is so superior to anything that Israel could bring out that he's not even worried if they all come and try to help Jabesh Gilead. So, um, so Saul is leading... Um, a, a people um, that are going up against potentially a superior uh, force. And he's doing this courageously. And so people were already sharing a proverb about Saul being among the prophets in 1 Samuel 10 because of the Spirit's work in Saul's life. And now we see further work of the Spirit. Um, and so you would say, how much more would they see how God can change and equip someone through these events in this chapter? In those days, though, the Holy Spirit would only empower people for a particular period of time for a particular purpose in this way. But today, as believers um, in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us permanently. And so do we expect that God, by his Spirit, can equip and empower us for his service? Maybe it's not leading a nation against another threat, but um, do we think that we can be changed to be more than anyone ever expected of us? And then do we have the same hope that another believer might be changed um, to be more like Christ? Sometimes we have hope that God will sanctify us, and we don't have hope that God can sanctify someone else. And sometimes we don't have hope that God, by his spirit, can change and work in the heart of an unbeliever to make that person a powerful proclaimer of, this grace, of his grace. But I think this text confronts us, again, the power of God's spirit, that he does uh, work, and we can have optimism that he can and will continue to change our hearts and the hearts of others to be like Christ. So again, that's not the main point of this text, but I think it's something that the text brings in front of us. So I would like to return to the narrative, and we're told that the dread of the Lord fell upon all the people of Israel. So it's not, even though Saul's the one issuing the threat, and he says, you better come out if it's not, if you're not uh, 
You better come out with Saul and Samuel. It's not the dread of Saul that falls on the people. It's not the dread of Samuel that falls on people, but it's the dread of the Lord. And so now suddenly, through the fear of the Lord, the people of Benjamin are now standing shoulder to shoulder with the other tribes that had tried to wipe them out. And so Saul musters or he numbers the troops at Bezek, the first location in the book of Judges where the people of Israel had continued the conquest of the promised land. Um, And then it's not really clear why Judah is called out specifically in the role. They say all of Israel, and then they say Judah. Um, But I think it actually has to do with the fact that the tribe of Judah was the first tribe that was selected to go up and fight the people of Benjamin in the end of of Judges. And I think it's underscoring that the rifts between the tribes are being mended as God is working in and among his people. Um, And so as they're mustering their forces, they send messengers to Jabesh-Gilead promising salvation. And it is said that the people of Jabesh-Gilead were glad or rejoiced. So I want to think about this timeline of events here. Uh, They they asked for for, uh, seven days to respite. And uh, it's about 40 miles between Gibeah, where Saul was, and Jabesh-Gilead. And they didn't have cars or anything like that then. And so for Saul to have received the message and mustered all the tribes of Israel, it's probably really getting down to the wire here for the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Most likely, it's, it's like they're getting this message like the night before. They're going to have to go out and have all their eyes gouged out by Nahash if nobody comes to help. And so they've been waiting and waiting, slowly hope, losing any hope whatsoever that there's going to be any kind of <clears throat> deliverance. And then suddenly they're given great hope that the king, the very king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, is coming to bring salvation. And so the people of Jabesh-Gilead then respond, not just by rejoicing, rightly, but um, by telling the Ammonites that, that they will give themselves up to them the very next day. Just a moment. <clears throat> Now, I want to make a brief remark here on narratives. Narratives are different than like the epistles. In the epistles, Paul will very clearly say, this thing is good, this thing is bad. Um, But narratives are not always as clear. Sometimes the narrator or a person in the narrative will say, this thing displeased the Lord, this thing is pleasing to the Lord. But other times... um, uh, we are left to figure this out by ourselves. And so sometimes we can figure out by what happens later or something where God has given a command previously. Um, uh, but uh, in, uh, in this case, I think that we can see this because uh, the question that this raises is, are the people of Jabesh Gilead sinning by saying, we're going to come give ourselves up to you and you can do whatever you want to us tomorrow? when they really know that someone is coming to deliver them and they have no intention of giving themselves up to um, Nahash. Um, I believe that God has, because God has previously commanded his people not to bear false witness in the ninth commandment, they are indeed sinning because they didn't need to go out and say, Nahash, hey, we're gonna give ourselves up to you. They, They could have just stayed in the city and waited for Saul to come and deliver them. And so I think that God is, using this to demonstrate that, and this, this detail is included, 
to show that God mercifully saves his people despite themselves time and time again. And so when the people of Jabesh-Gilead are delivered, it's not because they were clever by haggling with Nahash and getting seven days to, to bide their time. It's not because they then duped Nahash and allowed Saul to come in and beat them or beat the Ammonites. It's in spite of those things, and it's simply because God has decided to save them. And so early in the morning the next day, Saul organizes the military in such a way that they're able to sneak up on the Ammonites in their camp as the sun is rising, and they strike them down until the heat of the day. And the text depicts such a resounding victory that no two Ammonites are even left together. Um, so rather than hand Israel over to the man that they feared more than him, God mercifully hands the Ammonites over to Israel. So he does not repay Israel according to her iniquities. Instead, he shows compassion on them. He accomplishes a great military salvation through a man whose credentials were simply tall and good-looking farmer. That's, that's what God is doing here. Um, First and second Samuel were likely put together 100 or 200 years after the events that took place in this book. Um, we, we see hints of this like last week when it said prophets used to be called seers in Israel. That's a note to let us know that this wasn't just like a newspaper that came out the next day saying something. So all these details are being included not just to tell a story of what happened but to tell a story of what God is doing. And so the readers would already have seen moral and or political decline in Israel and in the kingship. And so to this audience, the message is clear. <clears throat> this is the God of Israel. While you long for the great kings and the glories of the past, the king of, the glory, the king of glory who made them great in the first place is still here, if only you will hope in him. And I think this is a reminder that we need every day. While our circumstances may not seem encouraging or hopeful, and we look back and think, if only God would act in the way that he used to. Remember that Christ the King is on his throne and he is still here. If only you will hope in him. God is the merciful Savior and King of Israel, and he shows this through a merciless enemy, <clears throat> an anointed judge, and now a merciful king. <clears throat> Let's look at <clears throat> sorry, um, verses 12 and 13. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished or worked salvation in Israel. So the people of Israel are triumphant. They are delivered from something that previously seemed hopeless. You see people weeping in the streets in, when the message is delivered initially about Nahash. And they... Um, have been saved by the king they asked for precisely for the reason they wanted him in a resounding victory. So right now, in their minds, they're thinking, everything's coming up spades for us. Like, we got what we wanted, the ends justified the means, and now um, uh, Saul's doubters, these worthless men, have been proven wrong. And so I think it's very likely that this is not just a, like, a celebration. There's a bit of a mob mentality here of we're going to wipe out um, these people. They're in the fervor of victory, they're saying, bring them in, and we're going to put them to death. Make sure that everyone knows that Saul is the king. 
And so it would be very easy for Saul to get caught up in the emotions of the moment, and we see him doing that plenty in the future chapters, but we don't see him doing that here. Um, in this moment, he doesn't act like the kings of the other nations. He actually diffuses the situation with the wise words, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So just as God mercifully spared the lives of the Israelites who hadn't trusted in him to save them, Saul now reflects God's character by doing the same. Remember what they said, how can this man Saul save us? He doesn't lash out at those who doubted and despised him. In this moment, Saul shows us what God's desired king of Israel does. He shows mercy while the day of salvation is still at hand. Christians, consider that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, <clears throat> we have now been justified by, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's Romans 5, 8, and 9. If you're a Christian today, you know that these verses tell you that you were once an enemy of God, but he showed mercy to you and brought salvation to you. But if you're not a Christian... Notice that <clears throat> the wrath of God is still there, and you are still God's enemy. But he has still shown mercy to you today by allowing you to have one more day on this earth where you might have the opportunity to trust in Christ's shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. So perhaps consider that today might be the day that the Lord has worked salvation for you. I do want to make one more remark regarding these verses. While Saul's actions of forgiveness would be surprising to the people who are reading this and they know, they know the way that Saul goes. And I think probably for most of us, we know the way that Saul goes as well. At the same time, these verses are very shocking, I think, for us. Um, we know that, that Saul becomes rather merciless with David, who has done no wrong, and he repeatedly saves and spares the life of Saul. And so perhaps you had some of the same difficulty that I did when I was reading these verses and I was saying, okay, uh, I know how Saul ends. How come he's really just the good guy in these, in these verses? Um, and so what am I supposed to think about a text where Saul's actions are commendable? And Saul begins beautifully as a king in these verses, but we do know that he does not end well. And so let this be a fearful reminder to all of us that outward good deeds and a great start may bring glory to God, but they mean nothing for eternity if we are not truly a people after God's own heart. And so this is, uh, while it's a compelling picture of God's graciousness and goodness, it is made bittersweet by knowing the depths to which Saul will fall in the following chapters. And so because of that, um, Saul's good beginning to the kingship only begins to whet an appetite for the better king, Christ, to come. And right now it only serves to highlight that God is the one who is the merciful savior and king of Israel. And so he shows this through a merciless enemy, an anointed judge, a merciful king, and now a joyful kingdom. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 here together. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Where they there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord 
And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Samuel takes all the people to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And I think at least I was, maybe you're not asking this question, but I'm asking this question of why does the kingdom need to be renewed? It seems like Saul was just made king. And why are they going all the way to Gilgal to do this? Um, But let's notice and remind ourselves that after Saul became king in chapter 10, he doesn't really start acting like king until verse 6 of this chapter. And so there also seems to be a bit more to this ceremony because there, there are sacrifices that are being highlighted as part of the coronation. And so the next question is, why Gilgal? Why couldn't they just have stayed in Jabesh Gilead and crowned him right there, right, right, right after he won? Or why didn't they do it in Gibeah, Saul's hometown? <clears throat> well, we are told that part of Samuel's yearly circuit of cities where he was a judge was Gibeah. Um, and... Uh, or sorry, Gilgal, but perhaps it is um, additionally because of the origin of the name Gilgal. In Joshua 5.9, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Israel from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The same word for reproach is the same word that Nahash uses of disgrace, bringing disgrace to Israel. And so uh, God has now once again, rolled away this thread of reproach in his goodness and his kindness. But I think there's even more symbolism to what um, Samuel is trying to do by bringing everyone to Gilgal specifically to renew the kingdom. Uh, As we read earlier, um, God parted the Jordan River and the people of Israel picked up 12 stones along the way. Gilgal was where they crossed uh, uh, or where they came out of the Jordan and they placed those 12 stones And Joshua stated the purpose was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So you see, even as a king is being crowned, it's in the place of this monument that Joshua created that is a testament to God's power over all the nations that he may be feared by his people. So his king, Saul, has brought the dread or the fear of the Lord on God's people because God is the one who has given him the power. And so it's just yet another reminder that God didn't have to deliver these people, people of Israel right here, but he mercifully chose to do so. And so because of this, it was more than appropriate that they would offer a peace offering, which is usually offered um, particularly because of having peace with God or asking for it. And so while not everything is perfectly well with Israel's relationship with God here, God has shown mercy and peace to his people. So earlier in the sermon, I posed the question, does God really care? Is he going to deal with this? I hope now that we see that the answer is yes. Um, While previously destruction had come to Israel because of people from Gibeah, now deliverance has come to Israel through a man from Gibeah. The people of Jabesh Gilead, who had previously almost been wiped out, have now been saved um, from a terrible threat by the people of Israel. And God heard the cries of his people and delivered them, despite their sin in asking for a king. This is just a beautiful reminder that God is in the business of bringing redemption where we might not expect it. 
even if it's not in the time frame we might want or expect. Often we want immediate mercy for ourselves and immediate justice or punishment for others. But God here had waited quite a while to bring healing to the imperfect justice and dealing with the awful sins in Judges 20 and 21. He waited a while before permanently removing Saul from being king. He let David and Solomon persist in sin, and he didn't condemn or destroy them immediately. The readers of 1 Samuel, whoever their present king was, they they likely were thinking, God, why don't you clean up the kingship right now? Like, why is this man not a man after God's own heart? And perhaps today you sit here and you wonder, does God see and does God care about what has been done to you or to a loved one? Or perhaps you worry about what you see in the news and think God's word is being mocked or maligned in the world. Or perhaps you are not a Christian and you think there is no, there is no accountability for you because of how you see the world working. I believe 2 Peter 3, 18 through, 8 through 13 has the antidote for this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord does not, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God sees and God knows. We want wrongs righted immediately. If God had righted the wrongs of Israel in this text here today, um, he might have just immediately given them over to Nahash rather than delivering them. Um, But God is merciful, and he desires that sinners would repent and trust in the shed blood of King Jesus for salvation. This passage reminds us that our time on this earth is not infinite, and we must make a decision about whether we will trust this king. But for those who do, despite the ups and downs in life, we know that this merciful king who saved us is reigning, and he is coming again to establish a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so the Lord has worked salvation in Israel and to the ends of the earth. God is the merciful savior and king of Israel, and he has shown this today through a merciless enemy an anointed judge, a merciful king, and a joyful kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, that you do not deal with us as our sins deserve. You have sent your son Christ to die in our place. He lived a perfect life, and he was raised and now is reigning at your right hand, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you that he has sent his spirit to dwell in us that we might be people who are empowered by your spirit to live lives of holiness and godliness. And I pray that you would help us to do these things. I pray that we would consider them rightly and I pray that we would trust you in the midst 
of all the, the things that we see around us. I pray that we would joyfully uh, rest in your uh, son's rule and reign. And I pray that we would proclaim him here and to our families, to our children, um, to our community, and to all the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.